The reading this morning is taken from John, chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of God. Hello, everyone. Oops. As I thought about um, today's um, scriptures and a little bit beyond it either side, I thought about the people who think they're God and are not. (laughs) And before I go further, we have a little bit of a temptation, don't we, in our life to want to control everything in our lives. Um, And in a sense, that's on the wrong path. So I'll run through a couple of people who... um, who tried to do the things the wrong way around. You know, Roman emperors were often proclaimed gods uh, after, their de- uh, after their death. And Gaius Julius Caesar claimed he was a god while he was still alive. And his son Augustus claimed to be son of God's saviour. And then God, you know, if you're going to be son of God, you might as well be the next step. Jim Jones that's up there, he was responsible for the famous Jonestown massacre. He was a US church leader. He began to think that he was God. He took his church, which was quite large, down to uh, Guyana. And um, he he thought he was a reincarnation of Jesus. He thought he was Buddha. He thought he was a reincarnation of Gandhi. He must have been a very split personality. And 980 followers, uh, 18 followers died. And that's the famous uh, scene you see in movies where they're given the poisonous drink and then 
you know, other people die by gunshot. And then there's Vernon Howell, uh, also known as David Koresh. He was a self-proclaimed prophet and the final leader of the Branch Davidian sect in America. In the 30s, the sect had believed a, new si a messiah would come, um, beginning with the last days. Uh, Howell joined the group in 81, took control, changed his name, became the new leader, uh, and then he claimed that he was both messiah and God. He had a 51-day standoff with the FBI. <laughs> and you might have, if you're old enough, like me, you might have actually seen it going, going on on TV. Uh, quite remarkable. And the compound caught fire, and 76 Branch Davidians died, including Koresh himself. Then we have Charles Manson. Uh, he was a homicidal man, a, a messianic cult leader of the 60s. Once again, if you're old enough like me, you probably remember that time. And uh, he started something called The Family in San Francisco in 1967. And he said to, to uh, during an interview one time, he said, I'm God to my friends, I'm the devil to my enemies. When I look into the future, I'm a prophet. Uh, when I lay down the law for our earth, I'm the son of man. So this man is seriously delusional. He's been in prison since a series of murders. And then finally we have a lighter note. We have a Brazilian man. He calls himself Inrai Cristo. And Inrai, of course, was the letters of Jesus Christ, son of God, saviour. And uh, that was uh, king of the Jews. And uh, that was up the top of the cross. And he believes that he is Jesus Christ and also, of course, God. He heard voices in 1979 and he started his own church, as many of these people do. And, uh, and he started a church with mainly female followers. <laughs> Need I say more? So have you noticed that people who think they're God often try not only to imitate God, but they imitate Jesus I wonder why that is. Let's consider Jesus for a moment. It seems incredible that a man who walked dusty roads in a tiny nation in the Middle East more than 2,000 years ago could claim to be God. Who would do such a thing? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and yet in the Gospel of John, we have Jesus saying three particular things. He says, he has previously existed in the Father's presence. That's remarkable stuff. That the Father God has sent him. And thirdly, that his existence stretches not only across the span of a human life, but even before that, even before Abraham himself was born. Well, no wonder that John, talking about Jesus, starts his gospel by saying in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there's an interesting thing here that, that plays into that statement. You see, because Jesus claimed eternal existence, John can write, 
that this word personified had eternal existence. And conversely, because John began his gospel with a claim that God has come to earth, in effect, it makes perfect sense to include Jesus' words found in John 8. John begins his story with the sudden imminence of a transcendent God. And he continues his story in John 8 with a transcendent Jesus who is so much more than the Son of Man with us. He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. Okay, let's, let's turn back a little bit to the date and purpose. Well, we, we see that the Gospel of John was probably written about 85 to 90 AD. It's traditionally thought that the author is the son of, uh, John, the son of Zebedee, also known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And the purpose of the gospel appears to be evangelistic. Aren't we glad that we have an evangelistic gospel um, in a time when we're thinking in our own society, in our own setting, about how do we reach people? What message do we convey to them? And here we have a gospel that tells us. So before we go further, we should consider, I think, why the term I am that you heard in the reading is so important. Well, you see, in the Old Testament, the Israelite God, also known as Yahweh, uh, and through the German we have the word Jehovah, repeatedly discloses himself. This is a God who doesn't hide away. This is a God who wants to communicate with us. This is a God who discloses progressively who he is. And we see him reveal himself as the God of the patriarchs in Genesis 15 and in 17 and in 28. Or as the Lord, you usually see that in your Bible as a capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, or Kyrios as it's in the Greek, your God. Your God who brought you out of Egypt in Exodus 20. Or more simply, the words, I am the Lord, as in Ezekiel 33 and 36. And of course, this firms up even more in the famous passage in Exodus 3.14. The Moses incident, the burning bush. Moses says, you're giving me... This being is giving me an assignment. People won't believe unless I have a name to give. And God says, my name is I am. It's I am who am, or I am the self-existent one. Now, just pause for a moment. It's so few words, but such a dramatic revelation, isn't it? God presents himself as, and this is important too, presents himself as the antithesis of the other tribal gods. You've got to remember, in the world at that time that this revelation was made, every tribe had their own god. And so here we have a god of Israel, and the nations say, well, that's fine, you've got a god just like We've got a God. But the revelation is this God is not like your God. In fact, he is the opposite of it. He's the antithesis. He's the absolute God. 
And that's a new idea for some of the people in other tribes. What, you mean that our God is not the biggest God, the only God? No, there's the lesson. There is an absolute God. Whatever this is, his God is the absolute God over everything. And we see that, don't we, in the, in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 2 to 17, where God reveals that there is no other God and I will have no other gods before me, so don't do it. <laughs> and that's the protection for us, not just a warning. This God is sovereign, uncreated, unimagined, personal, master of history, holy, a universal monarch whose purposes cannot be thwarted. And as I said before, he is self-revelating. In the New Testament, Jesus warns his disciples against those who may be led astray and claim that they are the I Am. That's in Mark 13, 6 and Luke 21, 8. So it's significant that Jesus reveals himself in the passages we've been studying in groups and here at church as the true vine, the good shepherd, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. And he identifies himself with the God of Israel, Yahweh, who has already revealed himself in a similar way, such as in Isaiah 43, 10 to 11. And Jesus' opponents also recognized that he was identifying himself with Yahweh in John 8, 58 and 59, as we've read. And again in John 13, 19, 20. You see, it's not just a matter of him saying, well, I'm laying claims to being this person. And some people might agree and some people might not. But his opponents absolutely recognized what he was saying and they were not happy about it. Now I'd like to dig a little bit deeper even still. Digging deeper, our passage for today of course is John 8, 30 to 58 and it re records a number of wonderful statements by Jesus. And one of the things we always do when we treat scriptures well is to look at the context. And the context here is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a, a harvest festival, but it also remembered uh, the time with Moses in the Promised Land, the transfer that they did from Egypt to, to, uh, to Israel, and how faithful God was in that. And the emphasis is God being with his people. And as we think about the tabernacle, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles, we need to realize that before the festival, there was a time of repentance. And at the end of the festival, there was a time, they even had extra days beyond the festival, because this was a time of reaffirming the presence of God with his people and the absolute um, superiority of God. The festival story actually begins in John 7, 1. You see, Jesus' brothers suggested that he leave Galilee, go to Judea, and they said, show yourself. Show yourself to the world. You see, they saw him as a potential uh, public identity. 
you know, if you're going to do things that are remarkable, well, make yourself a big man. And he refused to do that. But he did go to the festival in secret. And halfway through the festival, he goes to the temple courts in 714. And he begins teaching. And even though he had said earlier that my time has not yet come, as we see him begin to teach, we begin to see a man whose time is rapidly coming. He goes to the festival, he goes to the temple courts, he begins teaching and he starts with a bang. He tells the temple crowds that Moses has given you the law, but you're not keeping it. Who dares say such a thing? He says he comes from the Father and that his words are the Father's also and that his intentions are from the Father also. As I say, the festival remembered the time with Moses and that's why they built the little, the little shelters, the little huts, if you like, the little lean-tos, I suppose we would call them in some cases. They remembered their sojourn in the wilderness after the exodus of Egypt, out of Egypt. The festival had seven days. We see that in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. But additional days were added. Each of these seven days provided new insights to who this God was. So it's a remembering of who God was progressively. And the final celebration thanked God for providing the word of God. Think on that for a moment. Here is Jesus going to a festival that celebrates a God who progressively reveals himself in a ceremony that progressively reveals who God is and Jesus begins the process of progressively revealing who he is. <laughs> and how wonderful that a festival that ends with an emphasis on the word of God and the celebration of God as this wonderful, mighty God who provides for us, who protects us, has given his, his word to us. And to the people of the time, God's giving his word to them was much the same as God being with them. And that's why they celebrated that. There was this extra day or two, as I mentioned, and that's interesting too because it was specifically for those who were in the diaspora, those who were not in Jerusalem. Isn't it wonderful that not only were people having a great party in Jerusalem, but there was provision for those who were not in Jerusalem? <laughs> and the meaning of this was that God's mercy and provision was not only for those in Jerusalem, or the land of Israel, but also for everyone who believed wherever they were. Think again about that. There's a moment of Selah there. <laughs> Further, it was not only an agricultural harvest, but even in that time, there was the understanding of a harvest of believers, of a harvest of people who would come focused on not only Jerusalem, but focused on the God of Jerusalem. It was missional. You know, the hairs on my, my neck stand up as I begin to think about some of the implications. 
The people have repented in anticipation of the progressive revelation of God in the context of the harvest and celebrate the God-given word that brings God and his people together and finally, after the harvest, they arrive at the Shabbat rest, the Sabbath rest. Jesus, during this festival... This narrative provides a progressive revelation of himself in the context of a harvest. He is the word that God has brought, that God brings, God and his people together. He is the one who offers salvation, leading to an eternal Sabbath in his presence. And I think about today, just pause for a moment, today. Today, we are called to a place of repentance and Jesus calls us to his progressive revelation of himself, of who he is, which he says is the I am, that is God himself. He is the living word rather than just the word about the word. He does bring God and his people together. He is God with us. He offers offers us salvation with the assurance of eternal rest with him. When God made his promise to Abraham, he swore by himself, since it says in Hebrews there was none greater. And as for Moses, well, it says in Hebrews 3 that Moses was a faithful servant. What a wonderful thing to be remembered in Scripture as a faithful servant. That's what we we want to be. But Jesus Christ is our Messiah. He came as the owner As I said, there's revelation of Jesus in here in the festival. It's it's worth reading and reading and reading again. At each stage of the festival, as it is enacted, he claims to be the fulfillment and the true meaning of that activity. Israel is likened to a vine. Jesus says, I am that vine. Israel is referred to as the sheep of his pasture. In Psalm 95 and Psalm 100, it says because he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and we are the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. And Jesus says, guess what? I am that shepherd. You are my sheep. But they're rebellious sheep, (laughs) as are we. Israel was remembering the meal, the bread of redemption and the the meal that was had when they fled from Egypt and the manna that was provided on the trip from Egypt uh, to, uh, to Israel. They were celebrating the saving sustenance of our God. And Jesus says in John 6, I am your food, I am your bread. Israel looks forward to an eventual resurrection of everyone who is faith with him into the presence of their God, resulting in the fullness of eternal life. And Jesus says, guess what? I am that resurrection and the life. Water is poured out ritually to signify the giving of the Holy Spirit. You remember that? Jesus says, I am the giver of the living, living water. That is the Spirit, John 7. And I remember from Acts 2, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It was prophesied. 
And finally, as I look at these things, lamps are lit. Huge. You've got to remember, these are huge menorahs. They're, they were several meters tall. And if you look at the Roman columns even today, you can see them being carried by the Roman army as they took them home. These were huge. But these lamps are lit ritually to signify the enlightenment that comes from Yahweh, from our God. And also remembering that the people of God were led by a column of fire, a column of light. So the city is dark apart from the light that is provided here. We, are, we remember that a light overcomes darkness. This was ritually happening at the time. And Jesus steps into that context and says, guess what, guys? <laughs> and they, shouldn't they have by now thought everything that we're doing here, he's basically saying, I am the fulfillment of that. That points to me. And he wasn't being egotistical. He was being truthful. Can you see the escalation? Not only an escalation of revelation of Jesus as Lord, that is God, but also an escalation in the resistance. Uh, it, people are taking sides. There's no room for sitting on the fence. The middle ground is vanishing rapidly as we read these scriptures. Jesus says he's teaching the truth. And he underscores that by proclaiming that he's saying what he's seen and heard in the presence of the Father. And not believing what he says, the Jews at the temple there claimed a superior status, they thought. Well, we're, to, we're the children of Abraham. And Jesus responds by saying that they're children of the devil. How to make friends and win. <laughs> influence people. Not. And he proved by their disobedience, they proved that by the disobedience. Um, I went to a seminar yesterday that was held just here and Gavin, who was running it, said something that I think very much applies here. He said, Jesus offended their mind in 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 with the intention of revealing their heart. Uh, and sometimes we can feel in that situation as well. We read something and we think that is too much. It's offensive. <laughs> but at those times, we are not meant to move away from God. We are meant to understand that if we are offended, it's because we need to deal with stuff inside ourselves. And God wants to help us do that. And he will provide us the help to do that. And he will lead us from where we stand, which is basically a more rebellious situation to being one of being open to him and led by him and, and forgiven by him. Well, anyway, after that uh, wonderful, uh, encouraging message that he, he gave them, that they were children of the devil, in massive anger, as you would expect, they accused Jesus of being both a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Interestingly, have you noticed this? He defends himself against the accusation of being demon-possessed because he was speaking truth. They were telling a lie, a defamatory lie. He was saying, no, I'm telling you the truth. That is not true. But interestingly, he does not defend himself against the accusation of being a Samaritan. And I must admit I'd never seen that before. 
They were in effect saying that he was a Gentile and therefore had no place in the presence of the people of God or before God himself. But Jesus came not only to reveal himself to the Jews at the time, he came to inaugurate the proclamation of a gospel that would see everyone offered salvation, beginning in Jerusalem, going into Samaria, and then the rest of the earth. So it's interesting that he actually allows himself by default to be identified with those who were hated and those who were reviled and those who were thought to be not good enough, not sacred enough, not holy enough, not with the right breeding. Isn't that wonderful for us <laughs> as we think about that? Because many of us, most of us, I would think, if not all of us are in that position. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. So he came not only to speak to the Jews, that was primarily the assignment, but he came to bring a gospel that would talk to us all. Jesus removes discussion with these people at the time from the sphere of opinions. He claims his views are backed by Father God. They ask, who do you think you are? Literally, who do you make yourself out to be? <laughs> and Jesus responds with this startling statement in John 8, 54 to 58. He says, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. And he adds, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In our growth group notes, um, this is the punchline, if you like. Don Carson, writing on this, says, if only he had, if he wanted to claim to be only uh, before Abraham, he would have been simpler to say, Abraham, before Abraham was, I was. But instead, he brings forward the use of this term, ego ami, I even I am he, found in verses 24 and 28. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I, even I. It's an absolute declaration of divinity. So they rush, they rush to pick up stones to stone him to death. Once again, these lovely religious people <laughs> seem to have been lost in the process. <laughs> they rushed to pick up stones to stone him to death, believing him to be a blasphemer. The end of the festival was meant to highlight the unity of God, as I've said, with his people. But these representatives of his people, these leaders, wanted to kill Jesus in John 1, 10, 11. Oh, sorry, John 1, 10, 11 reminds us that he came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And here's one case in point where that, that happened. So just a few points coming out of that. You see, it was the Sabbath, but they wanted to kill the Lord of the Sabbath. Is there a moment in there which says, duh? <laughs> oh, 
They were gathered at the temple, dedicated to the worship of their God. And at the height of the festival, it was meant to bring God and his people together. Yet they were offended by God in their midst, in the person of Jesus Christ, thereby rejecting the God whose temple it was. Another moment of dumbness. <laughs> they chose to pursue murder instead of worship and peace. And Cain and Abel springs to mind where there was true worship but they wanted to kill he wanted to kill the one who was worshipping God they picked up stones from the temple construction site the temple was still being worked on by Herod's uh, proclamation they picked up stones from the temple construction site with the intention of destroying the rock of our salvation Psalm 62, 2 says, Truly he is the rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. He will never be shaken. But they were quite happy to try and pick up shards of rock and kill him. And the world still struggles with Jesus' identity. I'd just like to touch on four points before we finish. Who is Jesus in our own time? We've all had different experiences. We all come to it from different uh, backgrounds. Uh, the, there's four. There's a cultural answer. If you're around about 30, then you will have seen The Simpsons and South Park and been brought up in, in that setting. And both make fun of Jesus. He was like a running joke who kind of came in every now and again and something odd happened and then he went away again. He was like a running joke. And they made sense of him. Uh, we have in our society people like Ricky Gervais and Kevin Hart who make fun of him regularly. We have Jesus as a popular swear word. Um, Tim Keller, a pastor and author, said the popular press has a lot to say about Jesus. And of course, they aren't the only ones. It would be an exaggeration to say that the subject of Jesus actually has its own genre. You've seen the t-shirts, haven't you? You've seen the statues, you know, masses of statues, masses of things to hang on your wall. Uh, Jesus, the Jew, is presented like a, a gun-toting redneck or, uh, you know, he's, he's the so gentle, gentle Jesus that he wouldn't hurt a fly, the romantic version. There's biographies, there's scholarly texts, there's commentaries, there's historical criticisms, there's speculative fiction, what did Jesus do, which the Bible doesn't say anything about, uh, and everything in between. So how does culture in our day answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, very often it's basically this. Jesus is who I want him to be. The second one is a religious answer. Most religions do something with Jesus. They have to slot him in somewhere. So Judaism says that Jesus is a false prophet. Yeah, he claimed to be the Messiah, but we're still waiting for the Messiah. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is one and the same as the archangel Michael. Mormons say that Jesus is the Son of God, but stop short of attributing the deity of the Father to him. And many universalists look at him and say, Jesus is a great man. He was such a good example. And Deepak Chopra 
in an interview said, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. A Baha'i faith says that Jesus is a manifestation of God and a prophet, but still inferior to Muhammad. And the Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man, but not unlike Buddha. And in Hinduism, Jesus is a wise man, an incarnation of God, like Krishna. And finally, in Islam, Jesus is considered one of the prophets, but again, not as good as Muhammad. And Bible-believing Christians say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and equal in every way with Father God and Holy Spirit. Then there's category, if you like, three, a personal answer. Jesus was actually seeking these kind of answers. Do you remember when he was walking along on the road and he said to his disciples, who do they out there say that I am? And they gave him an answer. You, you saw, if you read that. You know, they say you're this, you say you're that. And then he pushes it, he bumps it a bit further for them. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? Unlike our times, cultural, culture and religion were very closely tied at that time. So they gave Jesus what was a cultural and religious answer. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Or maybe Jeremiah. And one of the prophets, maybe. And then Jesus pushed them again. Who do you say that I am? And if you grew up in church, you probably got to know Jesus as your saviour. But the risk is that we will be too influenced by our culture. And we will see, even in the church, Jesus as being what we want him to be. There was a study done in Notre Dame University that found the predominant approach of faith in our day was moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic. Basically, it means this. Moralistic, don't do this, but do this. Therapeutic, God's main function is to make me feel good. <laughs> and deistic is that, you know, other than setting a few rules of behaviour and being there to make me feel better, God is watching from a distance. <laughs> not really involved. Quite frankly, that's not the kind of God I need. What about you? And finally, we have Jesus' own answer in John 8. He comes under fire. Tensions are high. Jesus says, you can follow me and live or you can not follow me and die. Why? Because he's the I am. He has the right to offer eternal life to anyone he chooses. And he has the right to set boundaries. So they claim in, uh, in John 10.10, 10, uh, sorry, John 10.13, the opponents, they say to him, it's not for any good work that you're doing that we stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus saying, I'm Lord, and inferring very clearly that he's God, means three things. It means that nothing else and nobody else is God. It means any time we elevate something to a place that's higher than him, we're actually involved in idolatry. Number two, it means that every one of us can either choose to bow early or bow late. <laughs> Eventually, it says in the Bible, everyone is going to bow before him and acknowledge that he is the Lord.
wouldn't it be good? Isn't it wise to make that decision today or very soon? Uh, if Jesus, thirdly, is not wholly Lord of our lives in every part of our lives, then we will lack the conviction and the power to share him with others. And that's a rather sobering thought, especially as we consider the, the, uh, the direction of our church. What we say is important, not only knowing about Jesus, but actually knowing him and sharing him. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the sins of humanity upon himself and he made atonement for us. When we repent, if you like, before the festival, if we want to put it in that analogy, that, that bracket, when we repent, we place our faith in him. Our sins are dealt with permanently and his righteousness is counted as ours. What sort of a Jesus do you have in your life? If you, is your Jesus one who sings, as in Hosea 2? I have betrothed you to me forever. I have betrothed you to me in righteousness and justice. In steadfast love and mercy, you are mine. Is that your kind of God, your kind of Jesus? Or the one who sings, I will make you dwell in safety and you will be my people and I will be your God, and I will rejoice in doing you good with all my heart and soul, all his heart and soul, in Jeremiah 32 and also 41. And we will say in answer, whom have we in heaven but you? And finally, is he the one who sings, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine. And he, he says in, in Jeremiah 31, that he, and the Psalms too, that he exalts over us in joy. Is that your God? Is that your Jesus? Do you understand how much he loves you? Despite everything. Do you understand that he wants a relationship? Do you understand that he is singing and dancing because of the joy that fills him over you? Not only as a church gathered together, but you as an individual. I just finished with Romans 10.9. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Remembering that when it says, Jesus is Lord, the Lord there is Kyrios, is Yahweh, is God. If you say Jesus is Lord. I finish there. Thank you.